What a song. What a truth to proclaim. Our God is for you. I don't know about, uh, I don't know about my politicians. I don't know about my government. But I know that God is for me. He is for you, family. What a great truth to sing. I'm so blessed to be here with you today. Uh, we're going to be finishing up our, our little series in the book of John, uh, from John 9 and 10, excuse me, just those two chapters. The, the series that we're in right now is called Contrast and Controversy. And we've seen both in these two chapters. Pastor Paul has been doing a fantastic job helping us understand all that's going on in these two chapters. Uh, first of all, we've seen controversy. Jesus comes onto the scene in, in John chapter 9, and, and he does something absolutely amazing. He heals a man who was born blind. He heals a man who was born blind, and right away, there's a lot of controversy. The religious leaders bring this man, and they're, they're questioning him. They're asking him, hey, who... <laughs> Who are you? Who do you think you are that you could come in here and tell us something that we don't know about the Messiah? And he says, oh, I don't know who healed me, but I know that this man has power. This man has power. He's amazing. And there was all kinds of controversy. They wanted him to denounce Jesus, but he said, how can I do that? I was once blind, but now I see. We also see that there's been a lot of contrast. Contrast between the leadership of Jesus and the leadership of the religious leaders. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. But there are wolves who want to come in and, and they want to destroy and they want to harm the sheep. And so we've been seeing this contrast between the leadership of Jesus and the leadership of the religious leaders of Judaism there. So we've been seeing this theme of contrast and controversy, but over and over again throughout the Gospel of John. We're going to be taking a look at John chapter 10, verses 31 through 42 this morning. But throughout the entire book of John, we've been seeing that Jesus is saying amazing things. He's making great claims about his identity. And he's also doing great things as he's doing miraculous signs and wonders. But the problem is, is that many people are ignoring the works that Jesus is doing. They hear his claims, they see his works, but they're refusing to acknowledge the truth about Jesus. You know, I, I want to ask you a question this morning as we get into the text in just a moment. Uh, what are some things that you prefer to ignore in your life, right? <laughs> now, it looks like it's a pretty good uh, sized service here today. The nine o'clock service, I was blessed to see some folks here because this is one of the toughest days of the year to roll out of bed, right? We lost an hour of sleep last night. So I know for you, maybe you did it this morning, you thought, I'm going to ignore that alarm clock and I'm going to the 11 a.m. service today if you normally come to 9 a.m., right? Sometimes we like to ignore that alarm clock. Uh, some of the things around the house that you may uh, want to ignore, if that, that grass starts getting a little high, and you're like, oh man, I don't want to get out there and mow the lawn. Uh, I know my kids, they love to do this, this crazy thing at our house. They love to uh, uh, make some weird uh, uh, soda concoctions, or they'll put like these weird food groupings together, and then they'll make each other try them and see who could gross each other out. It's kind of funny, but when they do that, they make a huge mess. And so I walk by the kitchen, and I just want to ignore the mess that's in the kitchen. Sometimes you may feel that way, a big pile of dishes. Well, I don't know about you, I love doing laundry. I love cleaning and drying my clothes. But one thing that we all hate to do, and what is that? Folding the laundry. It's glorious to have clean clothes, but who wants to fold all that laundry? So sometimes you got that big pile in the living room, and you just kind of want to walk by it and ignore it and forget about it, right? Well, those are small things that we like to ignore. Uh, what are some more significant things, though, that we tend to ignore? Uh, sometimes we tend to ignore things related to our health. 
getting good diet, getting good exercise. And it's not fun and pleasant always to get that sweat going, but it's so good for us, right? Other significant things that we tend to ignore, that's, that's our relationships. Sometimes we, have, we experience conflict, and sometimes we experience the tension of just sinners living with each other, right? And so when that conflict arises, sometimes we feel like, I don't even want to address it. I'm going to ignore the conflict. But what about the really big stuff of life? the really, really big stuff? What about our purpose for being here? What about our, our legacy that we're leaving behind to our family and, and to our children like we were just singing, leaving a legacy of fearing God to children's and children's generations? What about our eternal destiny? I mean, so many of us, so many in our world, in our society, in our culture, live for the here and now. Who wants to think about the beyond, beyond the grave? Who wants to think about an eternal destiny? So we often tend to just ignore it. We ignore it. But what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Why do people want to ignore Jesus? You see, John the, uh, the evangelist, he's been writing uh, about the words and works of Jesus throughout his gospel. Uh, some of the people see what he's doing and they believe in him. Uh, but many, especially the Jewish leaders, they want him out. We've seen the tension that's been building. Jesus' opponents are arguing. Uh, that uh, They argue with Jesus in the hopes that they can shut him up but they aren't willing to acknowledge the miraculous signs that he's been performing. We've seen several times that the religious uh, leaders, they want to kill Jesus. And you think a great work that we just saw uh, about a month ago in John chapter 9. You think a great work healing a man who was born blind. Now you'd think, wow, that would start to get their attention. Wow, maybe this guy really is who he says he is but they re refused to acknowledge the significance of this act. They judged Jesus' words all the while, ignoring the most convincing evidence that he was right. What's that evidence? His divine works. And so the conversations throughout this journey as we're seeing with Jesus, the conversations, they get more tense. The conversations become more awkward. They become more uncomfortable. You know, we have a saying when, when we've got something uncomfortable or we've got an awkward situation that we would just prefer to ignore, but it's right in front of our faces. We can't ignore it any longer. We say, we call it the elephant in the room, right? We've got the elephant in the room. No one wants to really address it, but it's such a big issue that it's standing right in front of our faces. No matter how much we try to get around that elephant in the room, we can't avoid it. It's right there. It's right in front of us. Uh, the only way to remove the elephant is to address it directly. And if you want to write down one thing today, if you take notes here, we, we want to share with you the big idea for today that comes from John chapter 10, verses 31 through 42. As Jesus is encountering the religious leaders, is this, you can't ignore the elephant forever. You can't ignore the elephant forever. However hard one tries to ignore him, you must come to terms with Jesus' works. The religious leaders, they wanted to kill Jesus, but they couldn't ignore the elephant in the room forever, and Jesus knows this. And so as he's interacting with them one more time in this passage at this feast, he says, guys, you could say all you want, but you can't ignore the elephant forever. So let's take a look at our passage, John chapter 10, verses 31 through 42, and I'm actually going to begin in verse 30, but before we do, let's ask for God's help and for his presence in helping us see his word from the scriptures today. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have delivered a word uh, through John the evangelist here today, 
Uh, We've got your word. It's living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. But we recognize that our eyes are blind if you would not open them up. So we ask you here today, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things out of your law. And we trust that you'll do that. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, you can't ignore the elephant forever. Let's take a look at John chapter 10, verses 30 through 42. This is what Jesus says, beginning in verse 30. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. (laughs) For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Here we have the end of this this series of contrast and controversy, and Jesus is, is right on the verge of the culmination of this controversy, right? Jesus says in verse 30, finishes up this beautiful message that we heard last week that nothing uh, can snatch God's sheep out of the hand of Jesus, and nothing can snatch his sheep out of the Father's hands. And so Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And in case you missed the significance of that statement, look at the reaction of the Jewish leaders. It says in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, just the anger in their eyes ready to kill him. It says that they picked up stones again to kill him. In John chapter 8, verse 59, we see the same scenario. Jesus had stated, before Abraham was, I am. And they understood, oh my goodness, do you hear what he's saying? They picked up stones to stone him again at that time. But Jesus highlights the irony of their intentions. Look again in uh, in verse 32. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? (laughs) I've been doing good. I've been doing good. What are you going to stone me for? Why do you pick up these rocks to throw at me? You see, some crimes in the Old Testament, they were punishable by death. Adultery, immorality, uh, idolatry, Uh, There were certain behaviors that were punishable by death, specifically by stoning. And so here's Jesus is saying, you know I'm innocent of all the crimes that are worthy of capital punishment. So which of my good works are you going to stone me for? Quite ironic, isn't it? Well, they returned and replied to him and they said, well, we're not stoning you for any good work, but because of blasphemy, blasphemy. They believed that Jesus was blaspheming or slandering the name 
of God. Well, well, where did they get this idea that blasphemy is worth um, capital punishment? Well, in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, the law says this, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. And so here's Jesus, and, and they're ready to stone him. They're ready to kill him. But there's no indication anywhere that Jesus' works or his words have done anything to slander the name of the Lord. So they clarify exactly what it is that they're hanging on here to, to be justified in this capital punishment. It says in verse 32, We're going to stone you, uh, not for a good work, but for blasphemy. Excuse me, verse 33. Because you... Being a man, make yourself God. You being a man, make yourself God. What do they mean by that? Well, each time God, Jesus is declaring, God is my Father, over and over and over again. We saw that back in the passage just before this one that we're reading here this morning. Jesus is referring to God over and over and over again as my Father, my Father. And then he states in verse 30, I am the Father are one. So every time the Jewish leaders are hearing this, it's like Jesus in their mind is scratching their nails, his nails on a chalkboard. Oh, Jesus, what are you saying? That God is your Father? Don't miss the point here. They see it clearly. Jesus is making himself equal with the Father. He's declaring, God is my Father. We share the same essence. I am God in the flesh. They got his message. Jesus was claiming to be the anointed Son of God. But here's the further irony in the whole situation. They said, you, being a man, make yourself God. You see, if they had listened a little more carefully, and if they had truly addressed the elephant in the room, which was the works that Jesus was doing, they'd realize that Jesus was not making himself God, but that he is the eternal Son of God who was made man to come in the flesh, to be with them. They had it backwards. They thought a man was making himself God, when in reality, it was God who'd been made man to come and rescue them. So contrasting a proper investigation, if they were truly honest about the elephant in the room, they would have recognized, we're hearing these claims, what about his actions? What about his work but we've seen that they're not interested in a proper investigation. Uh, they denounce the claim of Jesus without examining any evidence. They declared a verdict of guilt and condemnation, but they ignored the proof that was right in front of them. They were ignoring the works that Jesus had done and that Jesus had done just prior, uh, in the prior chapter, the healing of the man born blind. Oh, how quickly they forgot. No, they didn't forget they were ignoring it. They didn't want to address it. So this is the claim that they're making against Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus said, fine, you want to have a war of words? Okay, fine, let's talk about words here. I'm going to show you the hole in your argument, why, uh, why your argument does not stand. Look again at verses 34 to 36, John 10. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, 
I said you are gods. Now, Jesus is saying, is it not written in your law? Now, Jesus isn't distancing himself from the Old Testament law. Jesus upheld the law. Jesus was the purpose of the law. Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. So certainly he's not saying, I'm against the law, but he's trying to appeal to the authority that they want to appeal to. They want to accuse him of blasphemy. Okay, then let's talk about the word here for a moment. In your law, it says this, I said you are gods. Now, where in the world is Jesus pulling this from? (laughs) Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is the declaration of God. It says in Psalm 82.1 that God is in his heavenly council, in the midst of the gods. Well, what are we talking about here? There's several ideas there. Some, some say that those are heavenly spiritual beings that have influence over the outcomes of humanity. But it's better to see here that, that Psalm 82 is, is talking about God probably speaking in the council of heaven as he sits in authority over the judges of Israel, the leaders of Israel. And so he says, I'm sitting over you and I'm watching how you are leading my people. And he's judging them because they aren't judging rightly. They aren't leading rightly. In fact, they're oppressing the poor. They're, they're oppressing the marginalized. They're, they're being wicked in their governance over his people. And so he says, you are gods. Little g now, this is important to understand, little g gods. He's saying, you are gods. And in Psalm 82, verse 6 to 7, he said, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. He's acknowledging you have a place of authority over my people. You're like little G gods over my people who are called to rule and to reign in my righteousness and in my justice and in my mercy. Nevertheless, he says in Psalm 82, 7, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So before we get too deep into Psalm 82, I hope that we could just see for a moment that, that right here in Psalm 82, In the law that these Jewish leaders are appealing to, God himself is using the term little g-gods to refer to men in high positions of authority over his people. And so when we see this, we see that if God is not afraid to call them little g-gods, and they had their little puny authority that they were abusing, why would it be wrong for Jesus to be declared the Son of God. You see what's happening, if Psalm 82 is not blasphemy for God the Father to call these leaders little g-gods, why would it be blasphemy for the Son of God whom the Father has consecrated and sent to be called the anointed Son of God? Look at what it says there in verse, in verse 36. Do you not say of him who the Father has consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? God the Father has set apart Jesus in such a special way. This idea of consecration, it's it's, it's temple language or tabernacle language. You, You think of utensils that you would use in your house to cook meals and stuff. Well, God had a special set of consecrated or set-apart utensils that were used in the ministry of the tabernacle. They were holy. They were pure. They weren't not to be defiled. And so Jesus, God the, God, Jesus is saying, God the Father has set apart me, His Son, in a special way. And I've been sent, meaning I've pre-existed, but now I've been made man. I've been sent and set apart just for you. And now what you're telling me is that you're going to be hung up over a word? 
Psalm 82, God is willing to call them little g-gods. And here I am, the one who's been set apart, the one who's been sent. And here I am doing amazing works. And you will not acknowledge that I am the Son of God. What Jesus is doing, he's getting right into the middle of their argument that they want to debate a word. And he says, well, let me give you the word that you need to hear. I am the consecrated sent one who's come to bring eternal life. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. And we use it all the time. If I were to be driving down Highway 4, and I I love driving Highway 4 east from this location, and you go over the hills, and on a clear day, you come around the bend, and, and then you see as it opens up to Martinez and Concord off in the distance, you see, wow, look at Mount Diablo. It looks looks beautiful, right? And you would even possibly use the word majestic for Mount Diablo. Yeah, I think just even the last couple of days, it's been cold and rainy. I think there was snow on the top. Yeah, it looks, looks majestic, right? But if you were to drive about three to three and a half hours down to central California and out to the mountains, and if you were to follow the Merced River, and then all of a sudden you open up to the Yosemite Valley, and it's just awe-inspiring. I love to go there. My mouth just falls to the, to the floor of the valley, and I just stand there in awe and wonder of the waterfalls and the amazing rock formations and the mountains and the beauty. Truly, this is majestic. If you could say that about Mount Diablo as you come along Highway 4, certainly you would say that about Yosemite. It's the argument of the lesser to the greater. If you could say one thing about the least of it, you could say it how much more about the most of it. And so Jesus is saying this, if God the Father is willing to call these men little g-gods, how much more should you see that I am truly the Son of God because I've been sent and set apart by the Father? The problem was not Jesus' claim to uniqueness. It wasn't the words he was saying. The problem was their failure to recognize him for who he was. And so Jesus catches them right in the middle of their debate, but, but he doesn't want to stop there because he has something more important that he wants them to address, and he keeps forcing the issue. Jesus will not let them get away from this. He said at the beginning, what are you going to stone me for? Which good work are you going to stone me for? And now he says this. He moves on in verse 37. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. I mean, could you imagine that? Jesus is actually giving them an out. He's giving them like a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you don't want to believe me and you don't see me doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. Don't believe me. He offers them a way out. Isn't that amazing? You know, I I want to tell you here today, if if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and, and Jesus did not do any miraculous works, and he is not the unique Son of God, let's just close this place up go out and go to the beach today or do something else. We're wasting our time. There's a way out. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, we are wasting our time. And Jesus says that. You don't believe me if I'm not doing the works of my Father, but he doesn't stop there. He says this in verse 38, but if I do them, but if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works. Even if you do not believe in me, believe the works, his works. His works that he's saying are not just my works, it's the work of my Father. 
It's, it's the signs that John talks about over and over and over again. We've been talking about it all through the Gospel of John. Really, it's what we would call miracles. Miracles. It's those powerful works, supernatural works that only God can do. And John uses the word signs to refer to these miracles. Why? Because he wants you to see not just the work themselves. He wants, to see that, he wants you to see that they're pointing to something else. Something beyond just the act. Something beyond just the healing of a blind man. Something beyond just feeding thousands of people with a few loaves and a few fish. Something beyond just turning water to wine. He wants you to see that these are signs that are pointing to the unique nature, excuse me, the unique nature of Jesus. Jesus' works are his signs. They're the significant displays of power that point beyond themselves to deeper realities that we can perceive with the eyes of faith. Each work Each miraculous sign he performed was intended to open their eyes to the truth about the identity of Jesus. And he's saying, even if you don't want to believe me, even if you don't want to listen to another one of my sermons, examine the works. You can get around my words all you want, but there's one elephant in the room that you cannot deny. It's that I've come in power and I'm doing the works of my Father. The elephant in the room. What are you going to do about it? Well, Jesus says he gives us the purpose for those works. Verse verse 38 again, if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know. Here's a purpose statement, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father that you may know. He uses the same word twice there, that you may know and that you may be knowing. It's this this knowing at once. It's having the light switch of your mind turn on in just a moment to say, ah, I see him for who he is. But then it's this ongoing work where you examine his works and, and you hear his words. You start to grow in your knowledge about who Jesus is. You see this in the lives of the disciples. They're confessing Jesus is Lord throughout his ministry. But then you get Thomas and he's still kind of doubting at the end. And then finally in John 20, he gets on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. You see, he saw it probably a glimmer of it at the beginning, but this knowledge of Jesus grows and grows and grows. As we understand Jesus, a light switch comes on at the beginning, but we all have this fuller, fuller understanding as we see him for who he is, the anointed son of God. He says that you may know and increase and understand in your knowledge that the father is in me and I am in the father. I mean, this is, this is amazing kinds of things that Jesus is saying. I think he's really just reiterating what he said in verse 30. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. It's this interpenetrating and intimate relationship that God the Father and God the Son and what we know from Scripture, God the Holy Spirit have been experiencing in perfect, pure love and unity and fellowship for for all of existence and even before existence. God is in a perfect relationship. The members of the Trinity are in perfect union and relationship with one another. And who alone can do that except one who is equal with the Father? He says, know that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. We share an essence. We're two people, but we share an essence. We are God together and we are in perfect fellowship and in perfect unity. Only one who's equal with the Father can inherently have this kind of relationship. And because he has that kind of relationship, 
it has a huge impact, as we're going to see in just a few moments. Well, the religious leaders didn't just need to address the elephant in the room. His disciples did too. His disciples did too. You, you know, you imagine the disciples are sitting there. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, these guys are asking a lot of questions that we're asking too. Jesus, listen to the works. In fact, Jesus has a similar conversation with his disciples, specifically Philip, just a few chapters later in John chapter 14, verses 10 through 11. John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to Philip. He says, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I, that I say to you do not speak on my own authority, uh, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the count of the works themselves. You see, no matter where Jesus went, you could listen to his teaching, but even if you didn't want to believe that, for everyone, they had to address the elephant in the room. What do we do about these miraculous signs that he was doing? John's been progressing throughout all this. You know, it's not just Jesus that's saying this. It's the whole purpose for why John wrote this gospel that we have here today. John's been progressing through these signs, through these good works that Jesus has been doing. You see, they're not just good works like you and I do good works. You know, I might go out and, and, and help somebody that's in need and, and show kindness and love and, and mercy to them or, or, or grace to them. Or, or maybe I help someone that, that's hurt and, and, and maybe I, I provide a meal for someone or, or do something something, a good deed to help them. But see, this is, this is not the kinds of good works that Jesus is talking about specifically. He's talking about miraculous works. And John wants to point those out. You Just imagine the progression here. Think about it. Jesus turned water to wine. Jesus healed a disabled man. Jesus feeds thousands with a few loaves and a few fish. Jesus heals a blind man. The progression grows and grows and grows. That elephant in the room gets bigger and bigger and bigger and closer and closer. And eventually, you've got to deal with it. And I believe that John has put this interaction between him and the religious leaders right in this strategic spot because as we're going to see starting next week as we get into John 11, that Jesus doesn't just merely have the power to feed with a few loaves and a few fish thousands of people or turn water to wine or even heal a blind man. Jesus has the power even to raise the dead. Jesus' powerful works testify to who he is. Jesus is going to come onto the scene. He's going to hear of his friend Lazarus, who's going to be sick, and then he's going to die. And Jesus is going to come to the funeral, and everybody's weeping. Jesus feels it. He weeps himself, and he says this statement, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. Well, that, that's a nice statement, Jesus. It's really poetic. It's really beautiful. He says, oh, it's not just beautiful. It's powerful. Lazarus come out. Lazarus come forth. And what do we see? A man who was dead come back to life. Who is this person? Who is this person that carries this kind of power? Who is this person that can say these kinds of words and not just blow smoke at us, but really mean what he says? Oh, the elephant in the room for you, for me, for all of us, for John and his audience is this, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he can give life to those who believe in him. Jesus is the author of life. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 5. This, this conversation has been going on all throughout the book of John. John chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. John 5, 18 to 24. 
right after Jesus heals a man who had been disabled and allows him to walk, says this, why, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Again, here's that unique nature of Jesus that he's claiming, right? You can't deny it. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and the Son, uh, son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Isn't that great? I mean, it's right to look at the works of Jesus and just stand in awe. It's like you're standing at the base of Yosemite. Wow, this is majestic. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. You see, this isn't just Jesus trying to win an argument here. He isn't trying to just catch the religious leaders in their apostasy and in their hard-hearted hearts. He's trying to help them understand, hey, the elephant in the room isn't there just to make you feel uncomfortable. It's there so that you would surrender and understand that I am the author of life. God the Father has given me works to do. And when I do these works, it should show you that I give life. I give life. This is John the Evangelist's burden all throughout his book. We see it right at the very end. We turn to John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Now, we go fast forward all the way to the end. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's risen triumphantly. And what does John write about all these amazing works as he's prepared to wrap up his book? He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in his book. But these signs, these good works, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. We need the works, friends. We need them. They, they show us that, that our leader, our master, our Lord, if you want to put it in foreign religious terms, our guru, the one that we look to, is not just merely a moral teacher. This is a man who demonstrated that he is unlike any person that's ever walked the planet. He is the anointed Son of God, and because of that anointing, because of who he is, he is the author of life. You believe in this Son of God, you have life in his name. He is the, the giver of life. Don't ignore the works, friends. It's the elephant in the room, and you can't ignore it forever. If Jesus is who he says he is, and if he's done what John the Evangelist and so many others have proven that he has done, that you've got, then you've got to address it. You can't ignore the elephant forever. Jesus is who he says he is. Well, I wish this story in John chapter 10 ended much more cheerfully. But we come to John chapter 10. In verse 39, it it shows 
just how hard the religious leaders' hearts were. Again, they sought to arrest him. They didn't believe the works. The elephant was right in their face and they said, nope, we're not willing to give in. They sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. But here's the irony of it all. These, these, these people, the, these men who should have known better, who had the Hebrew scriptures that should have been showing them that Jesus is who he says he is, they reject him. But what happens? Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign. That is John the Baptist. John did no, did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. They see the works. They recognize the elephant in the room, and they say, you know what? John was right. Jesus is the Son of God, and many believed in him there. We've got to ask ourselves, what, what are we to do about this elephant in the room? You know, we're not just here to follow Jesus' moral teachings. We're here to recognize, is this man truly the Son of God? Is he truly the anointed Messiah? Is he truly the one that God promised to rescue humanity? If he didn't do the works of the Father, why bother believing him? But if he did them, if he did them, what are the implications for us? What kind of loyalty? What kind of allegiance? What kind of repentance? What kind of belief? What kind of surrender is he due to honor him as the true Messiah, Son of God, and the author of life? You can't ignore the elephant forever. Though the religious leaders attempted to justify their desire to kill Jesus, they couldn't ignore the works he was doing. They couldn't stand to hear Jesus refer to him, uh, God as his father. They couldn't bear it, and they wanted to stone him. They were hung up on one word while they ignored the indisputable words, works Jesus was doing right in front of their faces. John's point in recording Jesus' words here is that the works that Christ did they testify, they bear witness to who Jesus is. He is the anointed Son of God. He is the author of life. Because his works bear witness to his identity, we can trust that he truly can give us eternal life. He truly can, and he's the only one. Though you try to look away, though you try to ignore this elephant in the room, you can't ignore it forever. Jesus is who he says he was, and because of that, he grants eternal life to all who may believe in him. What a glorious Savior we have. One that didn't just come with words, but came with power from on high and demonstrated who he was. Well, what are the implications for us from such a passage? It's quite an in-your-face passage, isn't it? Jesus will not let these religious leaders off the hook, and, and maybe you felt uncomfortable here. Maybe you've kind of felt like that elephant is sitting on your lap today. That may be a good thing for us to evaluate today. But I know we've been praying for our one. We've, we've heard it many times throughout the service. We, we've taken on this challenge for 30 days to pray for at least one person that we know, friends, family members, neighbors, coworkers, you name it, just at least one person that we know that we have a relationship with, that we want to see come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Today is day 14, and today's verse, I love it, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Uh, he's the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, 
and abounding in steadfast love. Friends, I know you're praying for your one. I know that there's nothing in the world that you would want more than to see your one embrace Jesus as their Lord and, as, and Savior. I know you're serving your one. I know you're doing good for them. I, I know that you're sharing meals with them and, and sharing coffee with them and, and helping them out in their time of need and doing whatever you can for them. I know that you care about your one. You're shining the love of Jesus through your good deeds and kindness. But maybe you're hung up here. Maybe you're struggling to find the opportunity to speak to your one about Jesus. Consider Jesus' words today. Consider the elephant in the room. Consider how Jesus wouldn't let those religious leaders off the hook, and maybe we could learn something from this today. You know, Easter Sunday is just three weeks away, as, as Grant said earlier. It's just three weeks away. This is the season that we can help our ones address the elephant in the room. It's a religious season. I, you could have your bunnies and your Easter eggs, but this is a season to celebrate the most significant event in the history of all the world, the resurrection of Jesus. And I think because the religious uh, understanding is, is raised a little bit and the awareness is raised a little bit, this gives us the opportunity. You know, unlike the leaders of other religious movements, both good and bad, I mean, we have Abraham and Moses of Judaism and they've died. We think about Buddha and Muhammad, uh, they've died. Uh, we think about the popes, uh, of the past, Mother Teresa, even Martin Luther King or Billy Graham, both good and bad leaders, but, but they've all passed away. What's unique about Jesus? What's unique about Jesus? Jesus is alive, friends. Jesus is alive. The works testify to who he is. It's the elephant in the room for our ones right now during this season. You have the opportunity to help them address the most compelling case for the truth about Jesus. He was crucified for the sins of humanity. He was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he rose up from the grave. And so maybe this question is a question that you could use to open up that door to have that conversation with your one. And let me phrase it this way. You could put it in your own words, but maybe you want to write this down. Have you ever considered why Jesus is so unique? Have you ever considered why Jesus is so unique? Put the elephant in the room for them. Just ask them. Say, have you ever considered that? You know, you can compare the teachings of all the different religious gurus of all time, but there's one thing that you cannot get around. All those other leaders are dead and gone. Jesus is alive. He has done works that show that he actually is who he says he is and help them realize what are the implications for you about that? Will you bow to him as Lord and Savior? You see, I'm not here to point the finger at people, but we've got to let Jesus do his work a little bit. We've got to let the Spirit do his work a little bit. We've got to allow that elephant to start knocking things over in the living room of our one's lives. Lovingly, we lovingly point them to the greatest event in human history. Jesus is alive. It's an elephant in the room for all of us. Help your one see why they no longer need to ignore it. They can believe in him and receive eternal life when they recognize that he's the Messiah, the Son of God take this opportunity, friends. It's the elephant in the room for every person. Will you surrender and recognize, and will you invite your ones to recognize the elephant in the room? Our Savior is alive. And maybe you're here today, maybe you're watching online here this morning, and uh, you've been examining the claims of Jesus. You've been examining uh, the claims of the church 
Uh, you've been examining the claims of, of the scriptures of the Bible. Uh, and maybe this morning, Jesus' words are, are confronting you. Maybe the elephant seems bigger in your room than he's ever been. Maybe it feels like the elephant is sitting on your lap this morning. Jesus did mighty, mighty works throughout his life, culminating in his glorious resurrection and appearance, not just a few, but to hundreds of people. You may be evaluating the claims of Jesus and comparing the Christian faith with other philosophies and worldviews. Maybe, frankly, this morning, you're kind of interested in Jesus, but frankly, you hate the morality of the Bible. You hate the morality of the Christian faith. That's fine. If you don't want to believe that, that's, that's your choice. But you must, if you're going to truly evaluate the Christian faith, you must not ignore the elephant in the room. If you're going to examine Jesus fairly, you must examine his works. You cannot ignore the risen Christ forever. forever. One day he's going to come return and he's going to judge the earth. But for those who surrendered and said, yes, I recognize Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. He will come to bring eternal life. Once you confess today, confess your sins, recognize Jesus as the Lord, as the Son of God, as the anointed author of life, and you can receive eternal life. You can address the elephant in the room. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you sent your perfect Son, Jesus Christ, to come to be the rescue plan for humanity that we could never devise for ourselves. He came, not that he would make himself God, but he is eternally God who was made man for us. And Father, the claims of someone saying, I have eternally existed and I am God, is quite outrageous for any of us in this room or watching online to say, but certainly Jesus is not any mere man. He is the anointed Son of God. I thank you, Father, that we have recorded here in this gospel signs that point us to the works of Jesus. They're the elephant in the room for us today. Father, I pray that you would help us, those who are followers of Jesus, open our mouths during this resurrection season, that we would uh, allow our friends and loved ones to say, hey, I, I want to help you address the elephant in the room. Have you ever considered the unique claims of Jesus? Oh, Father, I thank you that we don't serve a dead Lord. We serve a risen Savior. What hope we have in him. He gives us courage. He gives us life. Help us, Father, to open our mouths, to speak to the validity of King Jesus and his resurrection power in these days to come for our ones. And Father, I pray for those that are sitting here in this room or watching online that maybe feel like that elephant is as close as ever. I pray that you would allow them to uh, maybe feel it a little bit today. Father, that's a good feeling. But I pray that they would not ignore that elephant, that they would look to Jesus and say, I confess, he is the Lord, he is the Son of God. Grant that they may have eternal life today. Don't let them be like the religious leaders who ignored him and went away, oh, that they'd be like those of the Jordan River area that saw and said, I believe and I confess that they may be saved. Please, please do it today, Father. We look to you and we thank you that Jesus is mighty in power and that he is the Son of God. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.